Now, if you're new and joining us for the first time, welcome. My name is Simon Osman. You can catch me every Thursday where I interview a guest who'll share a story that will educate, inform, or inspire. And today is part two of my conversation with Lewis Conway Jr. Now, if you haven't listened to part one, strongly suggest that you go back and take a listen. Lewis is formerly incarcerated for voluntary manslaughter. We're going to cover in this episode generational DNA, something which is also a new concept to me, DNA vibrations and how it's affecting the African-American community. He's going to talk about the importance of positive role models, relationships, and how that's had an impact in his life. And we're also going to hear the story about how he ran for city commissioner in Texas, being and a formerly incarcerated. A lot of people don't realize that people that are formerly incarcerated dependent on the state can't vote but are actually eligible to go on the electoral ballot so i believe lewis was one of the first formerly incarcerated men to go on the electoral ballot um, here in the u.s so great great story you're not going to want to miss that now, for those of you that listened to last week's episode, I just want to say thank you. I had a fantastic, inspiring conversation with Lieutenant Colonel Dave Grossman about the violent video game industry. If you haven't taken a listen to that episode, go back and do it, particularly if you're a parent and your son or daughter is playing Fortnite. Now, we dive into a lot of stuff about violent video games and how they affected our kids. And then for me, it also changed my narrative. It empowered me to try and look at this and say, am my son's doing the right thing am i being a right a, a strong role model and allowing them to play these violent violent video games so before we dive into this week's content i just want to remind you that if you like watching these videos you can like and subscribe to my youtube channel at simon osmo where all these videos can be be seen uh, if you want to follow me you can follow me on twitter and instagram at simon osmo and the facebook page is at who i became so Will you join me as we continue our conversation with Lewis Conway Jr. in what I've titled Formerly Incarcerated to Civil Liberties Strategist? Welcome to the Who I Became podcast. Welcome to the Hubba Came podcast and today I'm really excited I'm joined again by Lewis Conway Jr. for part two of our conversation and if you haven't heard the first part I recommend that you go back there's some great insight in there. Uh, Lewis tells me off and corrects me for some of my my knowledge around the criminal justice system and how we should talk about former former felons. Uh, we talk about um, his moments of transformation. It's just it's just packed full of some some great insights. So if you haven't heard part one, uh, I'd encourage you to go back and and take a listen. But uh, Lewis Conway Jr., thank you for joining me for the Herbert Kane podcast. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate you having me back, Simon. Now, I'll just remind people a little bit about, you know, you're a campaign strategist, serial entrepreneur, uh, a national policy advocate. Uh, you're a former felon who um, had a conviction for voluntary uh, manslaughter, spent over 2,000 days in prison, 4,000 days on parole. And it's been a, an absolute pleasure to get to know you a bit more. And I said in part one, I'm really grateful of your transparency to share your your knowledge, your knowledge of insight. And I know I just want to dive straight into the to content, Lewis, and talk to you about um, positive role models. And, you know, me as a black Englishman living here in Minnesota, you a sort of black African-American. I'm still trying to get to grips as to what that term means. 
you know, I didn't have a father in my life. A lot of African Americans, uh, males particularly, don't have father figures in their lives. So, so maybe sort of let's dive in a little bit about um, some things you said to me about a, a generational life cycle around sort of black men in this country for crime and just not having those um, sort of mentors in in life. So um, again, thank you for having me back. I, you know, I was blessed to grow up with the father, right? And that's one of the reasons why I became an entrepreneur is because I never knew my father to have a job. He he always owned businesses. And I don't ever recall being hungry. I don't ever recall our lights being off. Um, I don't ever recall my mother not being able to get that piece of new furniture she wanted. He was one of my first influences in learning of mechanics of how to kind of offset being black. You know, he was, when he was in the army, his job was to be a computer. And this is before they had computers. So he was a computer. He would um, calculate the trajectory of the artillery. So even with the father, I went to prison, right? And that speaks to the generational impact that state violence has had on my DNA over the past hundred years. You know, I found out as I went on Ancestry.com and did some research, um, and I'd always heard the stories as well. My grandfather on my dad's side, all of my uncles, every male in my family that has my last name has either done time or has died by gun violence. So there's a generational pool towards trauma that is kind of embedded in my DNA. Yeah, and that is, um, it's fascinating to me because one of the things I often say to people, you know, particularly um, on, on my upbringing from a single parent family, you know, my, my mother is white and my, my dad is black. Perhaps I haven't lived in the same type of environment as you. But it's, it is quite hard for me to contextualize that sort of generational cycle of, you know, either crime or just where the sort of system holding you down. You know, maybe I'm sort of very different than others. I sort of did live in sort of middle class, middle class England. But what are some of the, the causes? Well, maybe you've touched on some of the causes, but how, how do those effects come from the generations then? I mean, for if, you know, people, if, if there's crime within your uh, DNA, if you like, why is it that the environment can't change or didn't change you? So in context, my son, my oldest son, who I haven't been in contact with since, you know, his mom, you know, he had a child custody case. My oldest son is a video editor. Now I used to hold him as a baby when I edited the videos. But there's no reason for him to be a video editor. My youngest son is just into video games, not playing them, but how they work as I was when I was a kid playing Atari, right? Um, LeBron's son is just as gifted as he is based upon his DNA, 
right? So there's certain things that translate through DNA or vibrate through DNA that we always don't embrace. You know, we talk about post-traumatic stress, but we don't talk about what that does. And this is kind of esoteric, and, and this is why Kevin Trudeau made me have a different understanding. There are certain vibrations that happen that allow you to achieve certain manifestations. What the bleep do we know? There's a, a, a scene in there where they take a, a, a frozen a piece of uh, a glass of water and they project a thought on it and they freeze it. They project this other thought, they freeze it, and it looks completely different, right? So what that means is there's a DNA vibration based upon the trauma or based upon the decisions that makes it important that I had to stop the generational vibration. I had to shift it, right? And so what that means is no one in my family has ever run for office. No one in my family has ever authored a book. No one in my family has ever directed a film. No one in my family has ever produced an album. You feel what I'm saying? Yeah. So, yeah. So, I'm, so I'm creating these vibrational kind of signposts that in the future, hopefully, it will interrupt what I didn't have access to. It makes a lot of sense. And I should say I'm laughing at myself because I'm like, I stumbled through my question. Uh, and I was like, how, how is Lewis going to answer this? Maybe I'll edit, edit that bit out. But you answered it so well, I now can't edit it out. But, but there's a lot of truth in what you said. If I could just share some of my opinion on that. It's very, you know, I have two sons, seven and nine, but they're very different, but the same, same DNA. And if, like any parent, you sort of say, you know, sometimes your kids do things like, well, that's really like me. And other times you're thinking, that is nothing like me. How does this kid um, do it? But I, I get a lot of comfort in what you say, because like I said, I'm not African-American. People have tried to put me in that bucket. I, I consider myself British, even though I, I'm black. On my father's side, uh, you know, my father is Nigerian. When my parents met, and my mum is white English, you know, my dad's family in Nigeria were li literally living in mud huts. You know, and I often think if my mum hadn't moved back to England, if I hadn't joined the police, I got a mortgage, I bought a house, I bought several houses, I've gone on to be successful. And, and I look at a lot of the race relations stuff happening here in the US, and you look at my sons, they're, you know, they're white by all accounts, you know, I mean, they're sort of mixed race now, two generations. Uh, and my point is here is that in future generations, they might even forget that their great you know or their grandkids you know they might forget for their great great grandfather was this black english guy who came to america whose parents you know lived in poverty in nigerian mud huts who had nothing but they've just got used to living in middle class uh, america so i think i i can relate to what you said very strongly there but there is this sort of this passing of wealth this passing of knowledge which has sometimes been been absent and we haven't got enough time to sort of unpack how, how a system might have done that but i i just want to share some in, insight that i can um, i can relate to to what you said the flip side i want to make sure that we move on to which is a really strong subject 
is about well how do we change those narratives um mm -hmm. and when i was talking to you you introduced me to your good lady wife and said simon talked to my wife <laughs> sheila ranger's podcast with you and it, it's forming those positive relationships and maybe from even maybe your time being incarcerated and your time out and your sort of advocacy work maybe talk to us about the importance that you see around particularly african-american men having positive influences in their life be it mentors life coaches you know sort of strong relationships with, with women absolutely so I'll, I'll i'll try to take all three in in a short um succession so one of the things that Kevin Trudeau talks about is who do you listen to? He says, you know, the first step is who do you listen to? And he says, you listen to people that have what you want and have been where you are. That's who you listen to. And so once I began to listen to people that had what I wanted, and was where I was in my life, that meant I was reaching out to people that had a specific kind of background, but weren't allowing that background to hold them back. Um, when I left the music career, I kind of left something that I thought I was built to do. And when I left it, I never imagined that my conviction would become my springboard when it had always been the thing that had hidden me. When I became open about my conviction, the doors flung open, right? Because I was obedient. Now, I, I, I have to put that into context too. I made an agreement and I kept it. So I was obedient. And through that obedience, God allowed me to experience the things in life that can translate into, you know, I've got health care now. And my wife is able to be my chief of staff and not go to work for somebody else. She can work for us, right? And so the more obedient I became to who do I listen to? Right. And so I'm careful about who I listen to. I listen to people that have what I want and have been where I've been. Eric Thomas, like my wife will tell you early in the morning, I'm outside <laughs> listening to Eric Thomas for the first 20 minutes of my day. If it's not Eric Thomas, it's Inky Johnson. You know, Inky Johnson uh, was, you know, he, he got paralyzed uh, when he was a 10th round pick for the NFL. Um, you know, people who have lost something that they thought that they were going to do for the rest of their lives. And now, what do you do when God says no? Right? So find someone that has been through what you are going through and has pushed through it. When I came home from prison, I needed information from someone who experienced reentry. I needed to know how to be a father. I needed to know how to be a son. I needed to know how to apply for a job to apply for housing. It's not the same. I can't do it like you, right? So there's certain tools and techniques that I learned along the way that would have been very helpful if the people who had successfully navigated reentry, if I had access to those people 
and said, hey, man, how do I do this? As opposed to my mother or my father or my wife or my girlfriend saying, well, just keep trying, baby. Just just keep trying. It's, it's going to happen. And a thousand applications later, I realized that I'm traumatizing myself a thousand times, not, not understanding what was driving me back to drugs, not understanding what was driving me back to certain behavior. When had I had somebody that had been through it to tell me, man, you're wasting your time putting in those applications. Go talk to the manager. Go tell him you will work wherever and then have him go talk to the hiring people. I needed that kind of information that can, you can only get from somebody that's been through it. So the peer-to-peer -peer concept, you know, um, the formerly incarcerated people being um, um, supported as mentors, either through programs based at the county or, or the Department of Corrections or community organizations, organizations or churches, where we build in these community systems where, where directly impacted people are leading the conversation on how we interact with formerly incarcerated and justice impacted people. Yeah, and, and specifically touch on your your wife, if you if you may, about because I think one of the points you said to me, which is uh, really true, is you said that you sort of I think you said something like you saw what a real relationship is about. You know, and I think quite often. You know, if we don't have anyone to learn these things from, well, what does a relationship look like between a, a healthy relationship look like between a man and a woman if you don't have, you know, you've got nothing to contextualize it with? So maybe talk about the blessings that it was for your when your wife came into your to your life and, and what that sort of means to you in your continued continued transformation uh, and also sort of just sort of growth as a person. I often refer to my wife as my best three quarters. Right. I, um, you know, we often say that there's a misconception about two partial people coming together and forming this whole, as opposed to two whole people coming together and creating a team or a marriage. Right. And so there was a lot of work that she put in overcoming her fears, overcoming her uh, self-esteem um, based upon her mental health interactions with uh, systems where she had nervous breakdowns and she had to be on medication uh, that really overlaid with the trauma that I experienced at incarceration. And so, you know, as I told you, the first two things that I told her on the phone when we met was I'm a DJ in a strip club and I've been to prison for eight years for killing somebody. Um, and my strategy was, if she can get past that, she'll love the rest, right? Um, but from the very beginning, we have treated our marriage as a partnership. We have treated our marriage as a relationship. We have treated our marriage as the merging of two holes into a stronger um, entity, right? You know, on our third date, we created a food blog that we just updated today on our third date um, we decided that we wanted to do business together even if we weren't in a relationship together it was going to do business together and so my wife has been not only that backbone that inspiration um she has been 
you know, the reason why I'm still here. She's often my caretaker. You know, I started experiencing seizures after I ran her office, and there's been numerous of times where if it wasn't for her, there's no telling, you know, um, or I'd be. So we often don't have examples of what healthy relationships look like because we think they're supposed to come from perfect places. Well, we are two very imperfect people that were never considered the popular ones, that were never considered the, the ones most likely to make it. But yet together we are cultivating these paths where there are none, leaving a trail for people to follow. And I think that that's what's more important than, uh, I think that that has been the defining ingredient is that we have never not taken on something because we didn't know how to do it. And so if we take that concept of positive role models, relationship, uh, mentors um, and, and seeking out people that have been in our positions before and as to where we want to go. You know, specifically looking at sort of African-American men, H how do we get them to that earlier, Lewis, so they do believe in themselves? They can believe that they can break this sort of generational gap. It's a very deep question, but I want to ask it you because we're sort of leading towards it. But, you know, if you were in later in life when you work this out, how can we get to those people earlier to tell them that they have value when we, we're feeling that the system is sometimes holding them back? We have to give flawed people visibility. In other words, the people who are most visible are the ones who are most perfect. And if you are flawed, you don't feel like you can achieve that. So to unpack that, or to give that some, some nuance, when I came home from prison, sure I saw, you know, the successful people around me. Sure I saw the, you know, the lawyers, and sure I saw the doctors, but I also knew that they didn't have an F on their back too. I also knew that they weren't big and black. So I needed to see somebody that looked like me being amplified in a space that made me say, oh, now if he did it, I know I can do it, right? So Again, forging paths where there are none and paving a trail. I was the first person to run for office in Texas, but it would have been easier had I had a drug offense. It would have been easier had I had a simple DUI. But because the first headline that was written about me was convicted killer runs for office in Texas, if you have a conviction less than murder, they don't, you're going to slide under the radar, right? So I needed that. I needed someone who had done it that I could look to and say, man, if he did it, I can too. So that's, so, oh, that's a hood thing, right? But too often it's the basketball player. Too often it's the rapper. It's not the guy that's got the PhD. It's not the guy that went, um, took himself off the block, got the GED, got the four-year degree, and, and, and decided to become an entrepreneur, right? Those aren't the people who are amplified. It's the people who have never 
done anything wrong. The people who have always had, you know, the, the, the proper pedigree, those are the ones we lift up. We have to begin to lift up flawed human beings that have overcome. Part of, and that's a nice segue into a sort of final piece of our um, discussion I wanted to to get out um, today. And that was about, you ran for, I hope I've got this right, Lewis City um, Commissioner in Texas. Was that right? Was it City Commissioner? City Council. City, City Council. And being a um, former um, former felon, there's a lot of restrictions in the US about uh, you know what you can and can and can't do. Uh, maybe talk about because one thing I like from your advocacy, you know, you are someone who's going to fight for the underdog and fight to change the system, and that system has to be changed from within. Um, and if you can't beat them, you've got to go and join them. You know, so maybe talk to us about your experience in trying to run run for city city officer. So the, the impetus for me running from office came from me helping pass a fair chance hiring ordinance that got challenged at the state level. And once uh, people, you know, uh, within the advocacy community saw me move around the state capital, someone suggested I should run for office for my district that I grew up in. And that district was being represented by someone who was a very conservative-minded individual and didn't see value in, in some of the things that we felt needed to be uplifted. So what prompted me to run for office was I saw deficiencies in leadership. I felt like the policies that, that land on people should be crafted by the people that they land on. I believe that people are experts in their own conditions. And I believe if given the opportunity, any individual can become better than the person that they um, were. And so uh, when I accepted the challenge to run for office, I realized that it was never going to be a me. It was going to always be a we. And I created a campaign that was rooted in making sure that the most disenfranchised, the most historically removed from the political process were able to experience a sort of participatory democracy that would define what I was hoping to be a um, revolution in local politics. Yeah, and I know you told me, I think you were the first black man to run as a socialist. Was that right? It allowed you to gain Absolutely. sort of national, national support. And I know that um, I think you, um, you know, you weren't successful, but you had 11% of the, the vote, which is a is an achievement. But there was a lot of controversy afterwards that because you are a former um, felon, uh, there were people that said, well, you know, should he be allowed to run in the first place? And they tried to implement legislation to prevent either you in the future or future felons being able to run for, for city office. So maybe talk to me a bit about, you know, your emotions and your feelings at that time that, you know, you're, you're sort of 30 years past your conviction, you're, you're doing all this good in society, but the, the system is still trying to sort of hold you to your former self. I mean, how does that make you feel when, when someone goes so strongly that, you know, this happened, but we're not going to let it happen again? I mean, how were you feeling convicted there? So when I first announced that I was going to run for office, one of the prominent black men in Austin commented on the post, convicted felons can't run for office, right? Um, and me not really knowing more than I knew, I realized I could run for Congress and I could run for president. 
So there was no way in hell I couldn't run for city council. Um, I had done some pro se work and I looked at the election code and there was an ambiguous statement that said I had to have resolved the disabilities of my conviction or I had to have received a pardon in order to run for office. Well, I took the law to mean what that said. I read it very plainly, resolved my disabilities. Well, the only disability I had was at one point I was on parole and I couldn't vote. Well, now I'm off parole and I can vote. Those are the only disabilities legally I have. Now, if you're referring to social disabilities, that's something different. But the law says I had to resolve the disabilities of my conviction. And so once I presented that argument to the city attorneys, um, they agreed with me and they felt like I had done so much work, you know, on the front end of, of helping pass some legislation locally that they wouldn't obstruct my effort. Um, but I didn't know I was challenging the law. I thought I was just on a run for office. Once the race became about me challenging a law, that's when I began to grow my, my understanding of the impact. It's not just about Texas. It's about 100 million Americans that are suffering disenfranchisement for something that they did 15 or 20 years ago that's continually being held over their head, but they're forced to pay taxes, but they can't represent themselves in a civic manner. And so I began um, to really have to fight the law on one side and then run for office on the other side. Um, and so you're right. It landed on me kind of harshly that because I was a, and I, and I, I don't want to use the word threat, but I have to use the word threat. Because I was a political threat, right? Because I came with experience in passing uh, bills. I came with advocacy experience. Uh, I didn't run a shoddy campaign. They realized that I was, though I was an anomaly, I was something that could be replicated if you change the color, if you change the conviction, I'm a different kind of person, right? So after the campaign was over, a state senator filed a Senate bill that would disallow anyone with a conviction to run if they had not been pardoned. Once we killed that bill in the Senate, they added an amendment that said anyone with a violent conviction couldn't run. And we were able to kill that on the House side, so. And so what did you learn about yourself from this? I mean, you know, you went into this with good intentions to change the system and try and help people, but that system is trying to sort of force you into that bucket again as a, as a former, former convict, you know, you can't do this. What did you learn about yourself through that process? Grow wings. Right, so I realized Texas was too small for me. I realized that I had to get 80% of my donations came from outside of Texas, right? So what that said to me was when things like that begin to happen, that means the nest is shrinking, right? That means your wings are growing. So I realized in order to have the kind of impact that I was needing to have, I had to work on a national scale. 
Uh, you know, I've got colleagues in Minnesota. Elijah Darris is is a good friend of mine that I should connect you with. Yeah, you can connect um, me offline. Let's do that. Yeah, so um, I had to get out of Texas because those people who know you for who you have been, it's hard for them to see who you're becoming. Right. So you got to get out of that space and you got to get into this other space. You know, I remember the conversation I had with uh, a local official when I told him I was leaving and he said, are you sure you want to lose your place in line? You know, all you got to do is just hang around. Are you sure you want to lose your place in line? Man, you, you just did this big run, man. You're right there. You just hold on. And I was like, wow, y'all are really standing around waiting in line for the opportunity to carry somebody's water. I can't do it. I, I, I can't do it, right? So um, for me and my wife, I realized that my wife was uh, a mental health advocate that needed a national platform. And I, I understood that she was not going to be able to be as effective as she could be in Texas, I realized that I was not going to be able to be as effective as I could be in a Republican state. Um, there are no black voices formerly incarcerated coming out of Texas, definitely not as radical as mine, right? And so I just realized that I had to be on a, a, a different platform in New York, New Jersey, ACLU affords me the opportunity to do the work with authenticity, but also with the kind of accountability that comes with being part of a hundred year old organization. Yeah, and, and that's great insight. And I want to I want to just sort of follow up with one question because I know a lot of the topics that we've covered, people are mostly saying there's not enough depth here. This could be a podcast in each one of these, these buckets, but there's a question I asked you, and and your answer was fascinating to me. And and again, uh, around the issue of can convicted felons vote? Can they then go on to sort of serve as politicians? You know, we live in a society where it's freedom for all, right? Everyone can reinvent themselves. Everyone can improve and change. And we're talking about uh, your specific conviction, which I understand was, was a violent crime per definition of the law. But we're talking about 30 years ago and how you've transformed yourself. I wanted to give that bit of background because the question I asked you is, and again, this is me, as a foreign national, I'll declare I'm not a, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm not an American. I'm a Brit here living in the, in the US. So I always give my disclaimers. But I said to you, what is it that people are so afraid of with having convicted felons vote? Bearing in mind that we, most of us here, believe in transformation and change. And your answer was powerful. So, so maybe just end on that, Lewis, for, for my listeners, as is, what is the system so afraid of? In giving convicted felons the opportunity to vote and get political change. You know, we say in this work, you either organize people or you organize power. And what happens is there's a patchwork quilt of state laws that disallow and allow certain people who are on or off parole or probation to vote. Uh, but then the majority of people in jails can vote because the people in jails have not been convicted of a crime, the bulk of them. So the, what the fear is, it's not so much if they're going to vote Democratic or Republican. That's a false imperative. The fear is that, they're, that those folks are going to realize that their vote matters. 
that they're going to realize that if you quantify every individual that has an arrest or a conviction and their family members, you create a hundred million person voting block. Right? It doesn't matter your party anymore. Right? Now it's about issues. So denying people the right to vote goes back to slavery. It goes back to denying the person access to being an American, access to being a human. When you deny people the right to vote, it goes back to us being less than a human when we were three fifths of a man, right? Regardless of the popular vote, regardless of the electoral college, even if we move the federal votes out the way and we talk about down ballot voting, DAs and sheriffs, and we talk about uh, prosecutors, right? When we talk about those instances, when you deny formerly incarcerated people to vote, you are guaranteeing a perpetuation of a system that has historically disenfranchised the same people that can re-enfranchise that system if they were given the opportunity. You know, you delivered it exactly as you said to me offline. And what I love about that is it's not about which side you're going to vote for. It's knowing that your vote matters and that you vote, that you matter. I mean, that is, that is a powerful tool that the people in there, you know, allowing them to know that they that you matter, particularly for those that have transformed themselves and are long sort of past their, their convictions. But Lewis, I know me and you can talk about this stuff um, all day, every day, and it's fascinating um, conversation. And, you know, we, we've gone in some different angles, but I think it really demonstrates who you've become, your transformation, the powerful work that you're doing, just seeing your your passion to try and fight now for, for those considered to be the underdogs is a great honour and a privilege to have this conversation with you. So really grateful for you joining, joining me today. Thank you so much, Simon, for having me. And I just want to remind people that, you know, it means an awful lot that you listen to this podcast and wherever you consume this content, please go and like the page, offer comments, offer reviews. You know, there's things that I might have said or Lewis might have said, you might have different views with those. And it's always important that we share our narrative and we discuss different narratives. That's how we improve. So like I said, it, it means an awful lot to me that you're, that you're listening to this and please go and go and like the, like the pages. So uh, Lewis Conway Jr., Thank you for joining me today. Thank you. Thank you for joining us for the Who I Became podcast. If you are enjoying the discussions between Simon and his guests, make sure to subscribe, rate, and review, as well as share with your friends on social media. Once again, thank you for joining the Who I Became podcast.